Well, welcome back to Voices in My Head. As always, I'm your host, Rick Lee James, and I am so grateful for all of you who are listening today. I'm super excited to be able to welcome back to the show again today, Brian Zahn, who is a pastor and a wonderful author, and he has another new book that we're going to be talking about today, and it is titled The Wood Between the Worlds, A Poetic Theology of the Cross. Brian Zahn, welcome back to Voices in My Head. Rick James, thank you. <laughs> it's so good to have you here today, and I, I really love the book. I mean, I know I say that about all your books, but it just always feels so refreshing. And one thing that's interesting about finding this book at this particular time, um, I'm taking a graduate class through Loyola on the theologies of suffering right now, and I had just finished writing a paper, and when I got done with the paper, I started reading your book, and you had touched on uh, so many of the people I was writing about for this paper, uh, Ellie Vassell and Bonhoeffer, I mean, just everybody going through the list, James Cone. And uh, it was so, uh, it almost was like a confirmation as I was writing my paper. <laughs> I thought, oh, this is but great. I, it all went well. I could, I'm glad I could help confirm that for you. It, it was so good. Well, uh, you know, as we begin today, I wonder if you could just tell our listeners um, a, a little bit about the name, The Wood Between the Worlds. I, I think it comes from a, a C.S. Lewis reference, but maybe a lot of people aren't familiar with it. I'd love for you just to share a little bit about the title and how it inspired the book. Sure. Yeah. Uh, titles are real important to me. Uh, a lot of authors they write a book and then they try to come up with a title and the publisher gives it a title. Me, when I sign a contract to write the book, I already have the title. I haven't written the book, but I have the title and I make the publisher agree that this will be the title. Mm -hmm. It's important to me. And all good titles are stolen in one way or another. That's, that's <laughs> you steal it from a poem or something else. This comes from, yeah, you're correct, C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia, in the magician's nephew, there is the wood between the worlds. Now, in C.S. Lewis's fantasy, the wood between the worlds is the woods or the, the wooded grove, the grove of trees mm -hmm. between the worlds. It's, it's a place where there are these pools of water. In, in the midst of these trees that provide portals to other worlds, Narnia being one of them. And so that's how C.S. Lewis uses it. I thought, well, no, I like it as the cross is the wood, singular, between the worlds. So that it's, you know, there, the cross of Christ is the wood between the worlds. There is world that was and the world to come and between those two worlds is the wood upon which the son of god was hung so that's that's the origin of the title which is you know like i said i i really have to have a title before i start writing i think that may, that may be unusual with a lot of writers but it helps it it provides the telos if you understand what I mean. yeah this end. is the form i'm aiming for I, i'm i when I get done, I want it to be the wood between the worlds. So, yeah. well, it's it's a great title and and a wonderful book and uh, perfect for this time of year. Actually, as we're in the season of Lent and we're doing a lot of reflecting on the cross and what that means, I wonder if there was anything that um, in in the writing of this book that you found out about the cross, maybe just even in your reflections that really stood out to you that you went, wow, this is, this is kind of a new way for me to see the cross. Yeah. This book, um, 
it, it has its origins way back in 2016 when I was walking our first Camino de Santiago and seeing all of these crucifixes along the way and noticing that each one is different. Because, you know, we're on this pilgrimage and, and I'm seeing crucifixes many times a day, but each one, they're not mass produced. These are one-offs and I'm seeing different ones every day. And so I began to realize, I don't know, I mean, this this helped me anyway to understand that we should approach the cross in a way that allows it to speak to us in many ways and into many varied areas of our life. I'm afraid there's been an unfortunate tendency in theology over the last few hundred years to attempt to reduce the cross to some single meaning. Mm -hmm. Oh, the meaning of the cross is, and we can put it in a sentence or two or in a you know, doctrinal statement of faith or something like that. And it just comes across as, all right, we're done with that. Next question, please. Mm -hmm. So I was very deliberate in having about 20 approaches to the cross. And what I discovered was that wasn't hard to do, that, that if you will not approach this subject of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ with an agenda to champion one solitary idea about it, if you'll just sit with it, all kinds of things open up. So by the time I started writing, I mean that this is this is a, this was in 2016. By the time I started writing this book, and I, well, I've lost track when I actually started writing it. I know I was done by the end of the summer in 22. Mm. And then it takes a long time for books to get, you know. I don't know what all publishers do, but God bless them. It takes them a long time. It <laughs> <laughs> takes a while. And uh, so, so I, I really kind of had a number of ideas that I wanted to explore. But while writing the book, I mean, I had a kind of an outline. I mean, my outlines are loose, but they provide me some sort of track to work along. I, I had not intended to write about Mary at the cross, which is an episode that we find in the Gospel of John. And I dreamed that I was writing this. Oh. <laughs> I actually I actually dreamed that I was writing a chapter on Mary at the cross. And I just took that as a as a nudge that maybe I should explore that. And so that's where the chapter, the sword pierced soul of Mary comes from. Oh. So that was that one snuck up on me. Oh. Wow. Well you know, I really love the way that you emphasize that we don't have to have just one atonement theory when right. we're looking at the Gospels. And in fact, as much as we warn people about proof texting, you know, take, take making the Bible kind of make it say what you want it to say, I feel like sometimes our atonement theologies are doing just that. We are We start with an assumption and then we build the scripture around it. And I love the way that you're helping us uh, to imagine some different ways when we are approaching it. And I, I really appreciate that you brought that up because you even write in the book, you say reducing a, the cross to a single meaning quarantines the cross so it doesn't touch too many areas in our lives. And I, I really, I love the way that that was stated for us there. So I think it, it and if we want to make the cross one thing, then we come, become combative. Uh, about the, because it can only be this one thing. And if somebody says, well, there's also this, and we then we want to combat it. And I just think that's all unhealthy. So I'm trying not to do that. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I, I think that's the the beauty of when you call it a poetic theology, because poetry does help us to to dive in and use our imagination. And so much of the Bible is metaphor anyway, and it's supposed to be speaking to that imaginative part of us that helps us to envision God and the theologies we have. Um, now, in the book, you get into some things that you've talked about before, but in a different way. And I wanted to ask you a little bit about sort of the nature of political power, because I found this to be a really powerful part of your book. And you draw parallels between the quest for political power in The Lord of the Rings and then using a real world scenario such as like uh, Donald Trump's promise of power to the Christians and um, how you see that relationship with the ring. And it, it's just brilliantly done in the book. I wonder if you might be able just to talk to us a little bit about that, sort of the quest for power in the world and the quest for the ring in Lord of the Rings and how the church has really fallen into that quest for power rather than the quest for Jesus. Yeah, sure. That was uh, the chapter one ring to rule them all. That mm -hmm. was that was one of my favorite chapters to write. I enjoyed writing that because I got to work with Tolkien. <laughs> That's fun. And so, I mean, part of what I'm doing with this book is when it's called the subtitle, A Poetic Theology of the Cross, it's not a poetry book, although there is some poetry in it and there's references to poetry. But what I'm doing is I'm engaging with poetry, but also uh, song, film, literature, and using all of these artistic avenues to help talk about the cross. And in this chapter, I'm presenting the cross as the ultimate critique to the violent power that we aspire to politically to rule the world. And as you said, I have written about this in books like A Farewell to Mars and others, um, but instead of just using the metaphor of Caesar's sword, which I which I often do, uh -huh. you know, as a description for the pursuit of political power, I just I don't know where it came from. I just thought, OK, uh, I'm going to use a metaphor, if you will, that people are probably quite familiar with uh, somewhat from the books and especially in more recent decades from the Peter Jackson films. And one of the. One of the most compelling aspects of the Lord of the Rings that I'm not, I mean, you know, there are Lord of the Rings <laughs> experts out there. <laughs> I've, sure. I've read it four times, so I'm conversant. But, you know, you, you, if you ever see some of these YouTubes and the minutia at which people discuss the Lord of the Rings, it's quite impressive. It is. It really is. But I'm is. not one of those. I'm not, so <laughs> don't get your hopes up if, if, if you're a true Lord of the Rings nerd. <laughs> I'm just a devoted fan. Uh, but the most recurrent theme for me in this, this, you know, monumental artistic achievement given to us by J.R.R. is the inability of anyone to possess the ring without being corrupted by it. Mm. And so you have the great ones, the, the ones that are very powerful, they won't even touch the ring. Gandalf won't touch the ring. Aragorn won't touch the ring. Um, Galadriel won't touch the ring. And they all have their moments of temptation. And mm. it's always the seduction of the ring is, well, you, you'll have power, but you'll do good with it. Mm. You'll do good with it. The only ones that can seem to possibly bear the ring without being completely corrupted by it are the most humble of people, or mm. I should say the most humble of hobbits.
And so Frodo is the ring bearer, but even in the end, Frodo himself could not willingly relinquish the ring. It had to be, you know, the intervention of Providence had to bring about the destruction of the ring. It's only Samwise Gamgee, the, the gardener, you know, the most humble of all, who actually possessed the ring. And he, and he had his, he had his, I don't think this is really played that up. It is, it's referred to just briefly in the film, but it's a little more uh, mm -hmm. pronounced in the book that he had these fantasies of becoming strong, wise, the, uh, Samwise the strong, hero strong. of the age. <laughs> and uh, he, he, uh, he's able to resist. And, and Tolkien actually, in the book, actually tells you why he was able to do that. Mm -hmm. um, but then you have the tragic characters. Boromir, who more, I mean, he betrays the fellowship over his desire to possess the ring of power. And uh, but and most tragic of all, though, is Saruman, this, mm -hmm. this wise wizard who decides that for the good of men, the, for the age of men, we must possess power. And as you unfold those passages, my goodness, it sounds eerily similar yeah. to what I hear uh, from certain proponents of Christian nationalism. Mm. That that we must control the seven mountains of power, or the or the rings of power, or the levers of politics, in order to bring about the purposes of God. Mm. Well, th this is lusting for Caesar's sword or the. The Dark Lord's Ring of Power. Uh, what we have been given, well, the way of the cross is we've been given, we've been given the keys of the kingdom. We've been given the Holy Spirit. We've been given the capacity to bear witness and be martyrs. We've been given the capacity to traffic in forgiveness through the keys of the kingdom. And our our approach to power is really more of a critique of power, and in that it resembles the cross and not the sword, or not the ring of power. And um, every time the church uh, attempts to, or even, or succeeds in gaining political power, it does so at the price of a compromised witness, and generally uh, a compromised fidelity to Christ, because uh, oh. the dark Lord does not share power willingly. And or at all, you know, and, and Caesar's gifts always come with strings attached. And then we end up actually serving a political interest rather than being faithful to Christ. And so I think I think I do it much better in the in the chapter. You know, I can't really sum it up. And oh, yeah, minutes or so. But that's that's what I'm doing there. And I think it's uh, if I can say so, I think it's one of the better chapters. I think it's one of the better written chapters. And uh, I, I like that chapter. <laughs> yeah, it would have been easier for me to um, underline the parts that I didn't want to remember in that chapter because it was so good. <laughs> you know, it's just like, it's like the whole thing's marked up. And yeah. uh, but it it was powerful, and I, I especially love that. And it reminds me a little bit of you know years ago I had um, Stanley Hauerwas on this podcast, and and uh, oh, bless think, Stanley Hauerwas. Uh, he's amazing, and and I asked him. I, I think I asked him the question something like this: Can a can a president of the United States be a Christian and president? And I think his response was, well, not for long. 
Yes. <laughs> and I really appreciated the way that he kind of stated that out. Cause again, it's this you, idea. You can't be good at both at the same time. Right. I mean, I actually believe that you cannot be a good Christian and a good president at the same time. And th this, 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 I know this is complicated. Political theology mm. is always complicated. So somebody might say, are you, then do you wish that no, no Christian would run for office? It gets complicated. And maybe yeah. we'll have another discussion at another time about that. But at the yeah. very, very least, the very least, Christians should hold the lure of political power in deep suspicion. Mm. And mm. if, if for the sake of the well-being of the polis, someone has to have hands on levers of power, then I think Christians ought to at least say, be careful. Mm. This, this probably is going to corrupt you. Yeah. Do your best though yeah. to, to not let that happen. And I just, I, you know, I think nobody's done a better job than Tolkien mm -hmm. in showing how powerful that is and how at one point Gandalf said, you know, if I if I took the ring, ultimately I would become like the Dark Lord himself. But the mm. way of the ring to my heart would be through pity and a desire to do good. Mm. And it still it would corrupt. He knew it would corrupt, and that's why he wouldn't wow. even touch it. Yeah. And th that's been my personal approach. I, mm. I I'm not here to tell everybody what they should do, but but I um, I've had over the over the years numerous invitations to the White House and other political functions from both parties. Mm -hmm. I have just assiduously said, no, thank you. Mm. And I'm, I'm not coming. Yeah. I, and it's not because I, I hold those offices in contempt. It's because I don't trust myself to mm. be that close to power and not be corrupted or influenced by it. I'm, I'm, I'm afraid I would become intoxicated by it and like it too much. Yeah, I stay away from it. Wow. Well, I appreciate your example. Which doesn't mean we can't be a powerful prophetic witness. Uh -huh. But but once we align ourselves with a particular political party, especially, we immediately lose our prophetic witness. We become either a tool to one side or an enemy to another side, but prophetic to none. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. It's it's almost like we we struggle to keep our voice of moral authority when you give yourself to one side or another. So powerful. Uh, you know, there's another part in, in the book that I, I was trying to narrow down. What do I want to talk to you about the book? Because there was so much good. Um, I was thinking maybe we could talk about Elie Vassell. Maybe we could talk about Moltmann or Bonhoeffer or different ones. But I think what I wanted to rest on is a, a uh, the scapegoat uh, mm. mechanism that yeah. Rene Girard, uh, I actually only became familiar with it maybe a year or so ago. And then I was so pleased to see that you had written about it because I feel like you describe it so well to us. And it has a lot to do, I think, with the way that our politics function right now. Yeah. And yeah. it's one of the reasons that things get um, so messed up if you are a Christian trying to be in that world because of what it requires of you to do. I wonder if you just might, maybe in the time we have left today, explain a little bit about Rene Girard and the way that he came up with this, uh, the way that he kind of just lays out the scapegoat mechanism. It, it's not like he necessarily invented it, but he definitely spotted it and sees what it is for sure. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, Rene Girard, 20th century French-American thinker that 
operated, it began in literature, but he actually operated in all kinds of fields, anthropology, theology, etc. And I, I don't have time, you know, to, to, to explain how he made these discoveries. People mm -hmm. can research that on their own if they like. But he discovered that all archaic societies have this problem that one, one of the only instincts that human beings have is the instinct of mimicry that we imitate one another. And it's how we assign value. We like to flatter ourselves that I'm a man of my own tastes, but to a large extent, we value what others value. Mm -hmm. And mimicry is neither good nor bad. It, it's what allows us to learn language. It's what allows us to form communities with shared values. The problem is when um, we begin to value that which cannot be mass-produced or easily shared. So a simple example would be, what if uh, one man uh, is attracted to a woman and then his best friend, because he is imitating his best friend, is attracted to the same woman? Ah, now we have the possibility of great rivalry. And these primitive societies all around the world, they were always in danger of collapsing in all against all violence mm. uh, generated by mimetic desire. And then they stumble accidentally, more or less, upon a miracle. And that is that if the community, the tribe, the society will pick, and they do this on, they don't know they're really doing this, but it, it happens. If they will pick one victim, a single victim, and then together they pool their anger, their fear, their envy, their jealousy, their rage, their self-loathing, and project it upon that one victim, in archaic times in the form of human sacrifice that at least for a time it doesn't it doesn't work forever but for a time it has this very cathartic effect upon the society the tribe the group the community because they have they've cast out that hmm. rage accusation fear and I, I think maybe maybe you can see it if i make it real simple think about a group of adolescent boys on the playground and they're kind of sizing each other up and who's the toughest and, you know, all of that sort of stuff. And there's anxiety involved because you don't know. And But then the group of boys decide to, they, they don't know they're deciding. They do it sort of unconsciously. They all agree to pick on one. Mm. They pick out one kid. Maybe he's a new kid. Maybe he's different. Who knows why? They pick out one kid and he becomes the target of all their bullying. And what it does is it produces unity. It brings peace to the playground, but it does so at the cost of creating hell for the one, mm. or the one who's become the scapegoat, which is mm -hmm. a term of scripture, where, where the sins of the community are projected upon the victim. And mm -hmm. so what, what Gerard, you know, in, in uh, Violence and the Sacred, he goes into great lengths to show how this eventually develops into a ritualized form of human sacrifice and then later probably mitigating to to uh, animal sacrifice, but it's still at play mm. in our, I mean, whether we're talking about playground politics or office politics, you know, if you got an office room of 10 people and one of the ways they can have unity is they agree it's all Larry's fault. Larry's the problem around here. If it weren't, if Larry could just get it and they all, you know, at lunch and it breaks and whispering at the water cool, and they, they blame Larry. And what it does is it produces unity, mm -hmm. but it's also demonic. It's satanic. 
And uh, the cross is what unveils that. What Rene Girard discovered was you, you see this phenomenon in all ancient societies and you see the mimetic rivalry set forth in literature through, throughout history, but that the Bible was unique. And as he began to make this discovery, um, Girard wasn't a believing Christian. He was a nominal Christian, came from France, but you know, he wasn't a believer. Um, but he noticed that the Bible was unique and that it was the only text in ancient literature that set forth the innocence or relative innocence of the scapegoat, of the victim. Hmm. And he says, you, you begin to see it in the Psalms, you see it in the book of Job, you see it in the prophets. And then in the gospel, it becomes very explicit that Jesus is the scapegoat who is entirely innocent, thus the Lamb of God. Not the scapegoat, but the Lamb of God. And at the cross, this whole process of achieving unity by blaming them, whatever them is, or he or her or whatever, uh, achieving unity by that is in fact demonic. Hmm. And Jesus is the, is the scapegoat, the, the banished scapegoat who does what the, the one thing scapegoats must not do is come back. You know, the scapegoat in Leviticus the sins of, of, of Israel are placed symbolically upon the goat, and it's driven off into the wilderness, preferably off a cliff or something like that, and thus takes away their sins. But if the scapegoat comes back, whew, that's, 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 that's unnerving. Something's gone wrong. Mm -hmm. And Jesus is the scapegoat, or we could say Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. We project our sins upon him, he take, but, he, but he returns. But he returns not with recrimination. He doesn't return saying, okay, now we're going to make Pilate pay. Now we're going to make Herod pay. Now where's Caiaphas? We're going to string him up too. No, he comes back saying, peace be with you. Mm. And Jesus invites us into a new world where it's not organized around accusation and blame and scapegoating, but around forgiveness and love. Mm. Uh, I, that, I don't know, Rick, that's yeah. about as good as you can do in, uh. in trying to sum up, you know, what Gerard's doing. I, I read one review. I've, almost all the reviews I've read are, are positive. I read one slightly negative review that the reviewer wanted to say, okay, this is what Zond is. He's a, he's a Gerardian. And this is his interpretation. I said, well, no, there's, there's one chapter on Gerard in the book. <laughs> and, and I think Gerard brings an important contribution to how we understand mm -hmm. the cross. But I mean, I sat with Rene Girard in his own living room and had mm -hmm. a discussion with him. And he didn't say, this is the meaning of the cross. He said, it's one of the things we see at the cross. But yeah. he was, he he became a, a very devout believer. And he, he believed all that traditionally the church has said about the cross as well. But he also brings through his scholarship and his brilliant research, uh, an additional understanding of what the cross accomplishes. Well, and I, I think that's powerful. And and one thing that he points out too is when the crowd realizes the fallacy of the scapegoat, like that whole mechanism, it actually loses its power too, which yeah. is another thing that is is just kind of amazing about it. When it's revealed, they go, Oh, we we were wrong, you know, type thing. And Gerard said to have a scapegoat, to, to to know you have a scapegoat is to not have a scapegoat. Mm. once you know it once you know uh, we're just blaming this person so we can exonerate ourselves and, and just you know have peace and unity among ourselves once you know you're doing that it loses its magic yeah and so but 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 the the so-called innocence 
of of uh, assigning blame to a scapegoat is actually demonic deception. Mm. I mean, you could say it's innocence, but it's actually demonic deception yeah. that we're in we're in concert with the accuser. Mm. And Jesus just calls us to another way of achieving unity. And it's not by projecting blame. It's by forgiveness and co-suffering love. Yeah. Well, this book is is remarkable. And again, I, I had told you that I've, I've been reading so many books because of grad school right now. But this one was refreshing because a lot of the concepts that we're talking about, um, you really do write about them in a way that is easily digestible. It is it is very, as you say, it's not po poetry per se, but it is very um, poetic in the way that it helps to get it into our hearts and into our minds, I think. And there's a, a powerful passage uh, that where you write about the writings of James Cone and, and lynching in this country and the history of that. Uh, there's sections on the just war theory. There's a section on capital punishment and theodicy and suffering and so many different things that you cover that we just wouldn't have any time to get through it all today. But I, I just, I want to thank you for a, another wonderful book that really moved me. And I'm going to be going back to it a number of times I know over the years to reference things. Um, but I also think, again, especially this time of year as we're in Lynn, I do think it helps us to reflect on the meaning of the cross. And I, it's, if we take anything from our conversation today, um, I hope that listeners will just take what you say in your book about it doesn't have to be just one thing that we take from the cross as we allow God to really enter into our imagination and enter into our prayer life and what we're thinking about as a community. Um, it can really make the seasons of the church, especially Lent and leading into Easter, so much more powerful with uh, the image uh, the images that you bring about in this book help us to do that. So I really want to thank you so much. Um, is there anything today uh, before we end our time together, anything that we missed that you were just uh, really hoping you could talk about today about the book? Because I, I want to give you no, a chance the, to do the that. The other thing I would say is, and, and I cannot take any credit for this, so this is, can be done in complete, complete humility. IVB, IVP did such a marvelous job with the cover. It's mm. it's gorgeous. I mean, it's yeah. It's an impressive piece, so my hat's off to the, <laughs> the art designers at IVP. Well, and very good. So we do thank them for that. It is a beautiful cover. So uh, the book is called The Wood Between the Worlds, A Poetic Theology of the Cross. And if the technology works the way it's supposed to, wherever you listeners are listening to your podcast today, you should be able to go into the show notes and click right on it and go to a link where you can get the book. So Brian Zahn, thank you for being one of the voices in my head again this week. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Rick. Well, and as we close out our time today, I just want to remind everyone that you can find out more about me and my ministry and things that I have going on at rickleejames.com. Thank you all for being here for another episode of Voices in My Head this week, and uh, we'll be back here again soon. Thank you so much for listening, and God bless you.